There are certain skills, critical skills, that you need, that we all need, not only to get ahead in our lives, but also to ensure a successful path forward for our children and for the survival of our constitutional republic. You're listening to All About Skills, where we discuss the eight critical skills you need to succeed and how CEOs, placement directors, executive recruiters, and career-minded individuals utilize them to propel themselves to a higher level of understanding and achievement. Get ready to learn, master, and excel with your host, Charlie Jett. Thank you, Anne, and welcome to It's All About Skills. This is a series of programs where we discuss the critical skills and their application in the real world. My name is Charlie Jett, and we're coming to you from our studio in beautiful downtown Chicago. I'm an internationally certified coach, and I specialize in career management, skill development, positive intelligence, and career crises. Uh, we have a wonderful guest today. Jill Weinbanks is best known as the Watergate Girl, and we will discuss that during our conversation later. She's had a multifaceted career in law, corporate, education, and as a regular primetime legal analyst on MSNBC, PBS, and other networks. She currently hosts two podcasts, Sisters in Law with her legal colleagues, and iGen Politics, the intergenerational program discussing issues facing our nation. Jill is truly a woman who has been there and done that. And it's a privilege to have Jill as our guest. So welcome, Jill, to It's All About Skills. Thank you, Charlie. I'm really looking forward to our conversation because you ask good questions. Oh, I will try to ask good questions for you, and I know you'll have good answers. But to start, Let's go back a few years. Tell us where you grew up and where you went to school. That's more than a few years, but I grew up in Chicago. I was born on the north side uh, along the lakefront and went to grade school in that neighborhood and moved to Skokie when I started high school, went to Niles High School, which at the time I went, there was only one Niles. It later became East. And my sister, who lived in the same house and is two years younger, went to Niles West. My brother, who's 10 years younger, went to Niles North because they kept building new schools. Uh, I then went to the University of Illinois at Champaign. I started, and not many people know this, I started my first year in occupational therapy. That was my major. And, and so if you want, I can tell you how I came to that career choice. I did not graduate in that. I ended up graduating with a degree in journalism and communications, and then found that sexism was prevalent in journalism and that I was offered really crummy jobs. I was offered jobs on the woman's page. So I decided that I would go to law school and there was a logic to it. It may not seem logical on its face, but I did have a reason and so I went to law school thinking it would help me get a good journalism job covering either the law or foreign policy, something really juicy. Well, that makes sense. Course. That makes sense. But I ended up obviously practicing law. And it's only now, you know, after I graduated law school in 1968. And in 2017, I began my journalism career. So it took a little while to get there. But I've now come full circle and have my television job. So there you have it. You got it. You got it. Now, when you finished law school, 
What were your, uh, your first uh, career aspirations and so forth? Uh, you know, you, you joined the Department of Justice as a prosecutor. So tell us a little bit about that. So I will, but I, I actually, in my brief summary, I left out some pretty critical things, which is that um, after becoming a prosecutor at the Department of Justice, obviously Watergate, then after Watergate, I went into private practice at a firm ironically located in the Watergate office complex. <laughs> I then was appointed by President Carter as the first woman to be general counsel of the army. And during that period, I re-met my high school boyfriend from Niles and moved back to Chicago to get married. And I've now been married to Michael for 41 years. So that's when I came back to Chicago. I was a partner at a big law firm, Jenner and Block. Then I became the Solicitor General, the first Solicitor General of the state of Illinois, and then eventually the Deputy Attorney General of Illinois. Then I became the Chief Operating Officer of the American Bar Association, which led me to say, I really like being a corporate manager. And so I then spent a year transitioning to try to go into a corporate business position, not as a lawyer, but on the business side, and got the best job ever at Motorola, where I did international business development for them for many years, and then got recruited to Motor from Motorola to Maytag. And, and then after Maytag, I did, I helped start up a not-for-profit called Winning Workplaces for the Lehman family who own a company, who owned a company called Felpro, which was always the best place in Chicago to work. It was always on the Forbes list of the best places to work. And they were trying to help small and mid-sized businesses to be able to achieve great workplaces. So I started that up for them and then ended up as the head of career and technical education for the Chicago Public Schools. When I retired at the age of 65, I became a consultant for a while and then started on my book and my new career in journalism. So that sort of covers the multifaceted careers I've had. Well, and you've done a lot, Jill. You've done a lot in your, in your career. And taking a look at the uh, kinds of skills it took for you to be successful, um, not only as a, a prosecutor and in the, your legal practice and that sort of stuff, but there, you know, actually in, when you were in the role at, as a solicitor general of the army and in your corporate and nonprofit roles, what were the key skills that you had to bring to bear to all of this? I, I think in all of them, uh, the skills that I think are the most important and that I would advise people to really focus on are one, critical thinking. If you can't analyze what's important, what the issue is, and understand and know the facts, if you can't do that, you're not going to succeed in any career. So critical thinking seems to me the first and foremost, and it's one of the reasons that I think that law school was such a benefit to me. It did prepare me for a job in journalism, but it also prepared me for any other job, including the corporate positions I had. So I think it was really good, as well as, of course, for my advocacy jobs in, in, in law. Then I would say something I learned in high school, which was writing an outline, learning to organize your thoughts. 
So it's one thing to think critically, but if you can't do it in a persuasive way to explain it to someone else, then it doesn't help. And I think that the ability to sit down and say point one and subpart A, B, point two, and to really organize your thoughts will help you enormously to be effective in communicating and persuading people. And persuading is very important, whatever job you're in, even if you're the leader, you have to persuade people to do what you want them to. I mean, yes, you can order them to do it. That I don't think is great leadership. You want people to follow you because they understand and they agree with your thinking. So that would be the second thing. Um, and it's very much related to communicating to the audience you're speaking to, because you would speak to, if you were a teacher in third grade, your audience is very different than if you're teaching graduate school or if you're arguing before the Supreme Court of the United States. So you have to gear it to your audience. When I speak on MSNBC, I know the audience I'm speaking to, and I don't talk legalese because it's not a lawyer's audience. When I'm talking to the Supreme Court, that's a different story. I can talk differently. And so you have to sort of you know, adjust your communication style to your audience. I would say those are maybe the three most important things. And in terms of leadership, um, those are all important. And uh, there are some, you know, when you take people on leadership training, you know, there are some very common practices, uh, things like get, getting people to understand that groups function better and do better than any individual in the group. So, you know, you can have them all take a test of what's the most important thing you would have on the moon with you and you fill it out and then you get together and you talk about it and the group always does better than any individual in the group ever did. Um, there are things like where you have the everybody's blindfolded except the leader and the leader has to give instructions so that nobody falls down as they're following. And it really does train you to think about how am I being heard and what about the first person and what about the person who's 10 feet behind and the person who's 20 feet behind. So I think those are all good skills to have to really be a leader, to be an effective communicator. Well, Jill, I can tell you, you, you hit the nail on the head when, when it comes to the critical skills that we advocate because, and you've had the perfect educational background for that and experience in that, you know, the number one communicate skill, uh, critical skill is communications. You've got to be able to get ideas out of your head and into the heads of other people mm -hmm. and do it persuasively. And from your legal experience and your prosecu uh, prosecutor's experience, you have to get the right information and make sure that it's relevant and true yes. before you then can draw conclusions and make a legal argument. So you're your educational background and your experience just play right into the hands of the critical skills. And, and in today's world, we all should be very worried about whether facts matter anymore. It worries Absolutely. me enormously. Well, a long time ago, if people reach the, read their history, they, they know that somebody uh, long back in the 30s uh, said, you know, the bigger the lie you tell, the more people are going to believe it. And when another person said, the more times you tell it, the more people are going to believe it. And they just basically put a big X through information and facts. 
and then draw the conclusions. And you know, with that experience, it was pretty easy for me to see why you made a transition into education and went into the, uh, in that role at the Chicago Public Schools during the days of the school to work or the education to careers uh, programs. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and what, what really motivated you to do that? It was part, partly and mostly maybe motivated by giving back. Um, I have always enjoyed um, being in public service. Those have been my best jobs. I, although Motorola maybe was an exception. Um, so I, I really like being able to make the world better. And I was raised very much by my parents to believe that I was a lucky person who needed to give back because I had had a lot of blessings in my life. And so I've always enjoyed that part. And I basically thought that when I was approached by CPS that I couldn't possibly consider it because I have no education background and I don't particularly ever, I did teach for two years at Columbia uh, Law School as an adjunct, but I didn't really love teaching. And, but Arnie Duncan, who was the um, supervisor, the, he was the uh, superintendent of schools at the time, uh, went on to become the Secretary of Education under President Obama, said, look, what we're looking for is not someone who's got educational background. We need someone who has a corporate background who can help us to identify what are the careers of the future? What are the skills that students need to enter that? And what corporations in Chicago will help us to fund programs to train them for that? And those were skills that I had. Yes. So I took on creating a board of advisors for the department with corporate executives who would then, of course, contribute in terms of their knowledge and sometimes funding for the programs, but also just their knowledge to help me identify, were we offering the right career training or did we need a whole new set of careers? And um, was our equipment the right equipment that, you know, is it real stuff that they would use that students would then use in the workplace? So it turned out to be a really terrific job. And um, one of the things that um, Arnie said, I'd like you to create something with DeVry University. And we went out there, he and I, to talk to the president of DeVry and some staff people and came up with the idea of creating basically an early college. It was a high school called DeVry Advantage Academy. And it was physically located um, in DeVry's campus next to Lane High School in Chicago. And the students would graduate in four years of high school, but they got a diploma and the next day they got their associate's degree from DeVry. That's impressive. That's impressive. And these were just, I mean, these were <clears throat> students who we recruited from plain old ordinary Chicago public high schools. They did have to test into the school. They had to pass DeVry's admissions tests. So they were smart, almost none of them had any family member who had gone to college. Most of them didn't think they could go to college. 
almost 100% of those who got their associate degree, which is almost 100% of the students we recruited, ended up getting a four-year degree. That's and, impressive. And That's it's, impressive. It is, it's something that honestly, if, if I were the superintendent of Chicago Public Schools, I would create a dozen more of those because I think there are a lot more students who could benefit from that. It means they only have to pay for two years of college because they've already got their associate degree. And they also, more importantly, know that they actually can do college level. That means they know they could graduate from college. And it opens up all sorts of doors for students who would never have thought they could do it. And that's what's so important about it. And the degree they get from DeVry was in network systems analysis, uh, a computer programming, but you could do it in electronic medical records, in some of the nursing fields. There are a lot of areas where it could be useful. Now, some of the students ended up going to college, not just for two extra years, because they decided they didn't want to stay in the technical field and they wanted a broader degree, so they needed to get more credits. Uh, they had two years worth of credits, but they weren't in the right field. So some of them ended up actually going for, for an extra year or even two extra years. Isn't it amazing, Jill, how uh, you, if you give young people, even with uh, not much of a background, an opportunity, what they can actually do? And it, it's it, not surprising that that program was successful. It, well, it, it was successful for a couple of reasons. One, of course, it meant that if they wanted to go on for two more years of college or more, um, they could earn money because the pay for network systems administrators is very good, more than any of their families earned. And so they could go on to college paying by, by working at the same time. Um, I mentored a young man from that first year's class uh, to this day, uh, he's now a father of two and a very successful. I had actually hoped he would go to law school. He ended up getting a master's in paralegal studies and has a very successful career as a paralegal, which is after working in a law firm, he said, you know, I really don't want to be a lawyer, but I like being a paralegal. And so he found a great career for himself and he's doing, I'm very, very proud of him and uh, very glad to have been a small part of his life. Um, the, the thing about career education is it's very much talked down about. People think, you know, career education is neither career training nor education, that it doesn't do either. And that's not true because the first thing that happens is students realize, gee, if I want to be a carpenter, I have to understand geometry because a right angle is essential or the building's going to fall down. If I want to be a chef, I have to know mathematics in order to be able to change a recipe and double it or triple it or have it. And they understand, oh, I need computer skills to repair a car. Yep. I'm going to have to learn how to read the manual. And all of a sudden, their grades go up, their attendance goes up, their discipline problems go down. Um, I actually had hired a University of Illinois at Chicago economist Helen Roberts to analyze like groups, those who went into career education and those who didn't. 
And the ones in career education did much better in terms of their grades, their attendance, their graduation rates, because they got why they were in school. It became important. It was something they wanted to learn. Wow, I can tell you, uh, you know, those were exciting days when there was an awful lot of enthusiasm and support for uh, integrating the kinds of skills you needed in any sort of career with academics. Like, what can I do with this stuff? But then, you know, in the, I remember in the late 90s or early 2000s, that, that, that kind of went away and uh, in a little bit, and it was replaced with uh, no child left behind and stuff like that. And it was sort of the, so the funding went away, as I recall. Well, there were some funding problems, but, um, you know, I was there until 2000. I went there in 2003 to 2008. Okay. And um, I, I felt very much how important it was. And I really, I enjoyed my interactions with everybody there um, and felt like we really enhanced the programs that led to students having skills upon graduation that, you know, not everybody goes to college. Yeah. And I mean, it's wonderful. I'm all for it. But we need a lot of people who don't need a college degree in order to be a functioning society. And, you know, people have very misinformation about things like, well, if you want to be an electrician, well, you sure want that electrician to know mathematics and science. You don't want someone messing in your house who doesn't know those things. Think about the dangers. So I think people underestimate the educational requirements for a lot of, of and, and if you've ever worked with even just a handyman, you know what critical thinking skills they have. Yes. They come in and you say, this isn't working. You have no idea why it's not working but they have the critical thinking skills to say, well, it could be this, it could be this, and they test and they figure it out. Those are the same critical thinking skills that enabled me to be a lawyer, that enabled me to be a corporate executive, that enabled me to be the COO of the American Bar Association. Those are the same skills. So everybody needs that educational training. Yep. Well, those were, those were wonderful days, and I can tell from the the joy in your voice that they were, it was so, uh, it is so important and meaningful to you. But let's go back in time again mm -hmm. to that extraordinary experience that you had when you, you were part of a team that held a president and his minions accountable as a Watergate prosecutor. And you wrote a book about it. You wrote a book called The Watergate Girl, and I'll encourage everybody to get the book. You can get it on Amazon and the book, bookstores. But Jill, tell us a little bit about the Watergate experience, the challenges you faced, uh, and generally what you write about in the book. I would say the book has two themes and the stories that went into the book, because it is a memoir. And for every story that's in the book, there are a dozen that didn't make it into the book because you know otherwise it would be a six volume too heavy to carry uh, and I had the best editor ever he was terrific and he helped me to sort of carve it down so that he wanted it to be a very personal book something people could hold and really relate to um, and the two themes are obviously the Watergate investigation the tapes hearing the trial 
and then the hurdles that as a woman I faced. Yes, and I, I can. I was going to. I was going to encourage you to go there because uh, let's let's hear about that. Well, the, those were the two you know themes of the book. Yeah. And so, if the story didn't fit one of those two themes, it didn't go in. But even within that, there there were many themes. So when I graduated law school, only four percent of all the lawyers in America, four percent, were female. So I was one of very few. And of the 4%, very few of those were in trial practice. So that meant that I was like one of almost none uh, in, in a courtroom. And when I would go to a courtroom, I would always be greeted by the clerk with, whose secretary are you? Yes, or can you type? <laughs> exactly. Nobody ever assumed I was actually representing the United States of America. Um, and so there was a lot of discrimination, outright discrimination. The EEOC didn't exist. There were no laws protecting women. So there were, for example, help wanted ads were in newspapers, classified section, and it would be help wanted male, yeah. help wanted female. And that's, you know, you didn't apply for a job that said help wanted male. Um, and people would say when I was interviewing, even, you know, when I graduated law school, I'd be interviewing at firms and they'd say, what kind of birth control do you use? How many children are you going to have? How long are you going to work? Questions they would never ask a man. And I had, um, in one interview, they said, well, we can't really hire you because everybody else is a man and you'd have to travel in this job and we can't possibly let you travel with a man. And then when I finally, I got this great job at the Department of Justice and as a trial lawyer, mm -hmm. but you always start at, in the organized crime section, handling appeals because you learn the mistakes that trial lawyers make by reading the record and arguing about why it's okay. And I didn't realize till I'd been there for about a year that the men I started with had moved on and were now trying cases and I was still arguing appeals. Uh -huh. I was the only woman, so I didn't have someone to talk to about this. And so I had to sort of figure out for myself, how do I handle this? So I went to the head of the section and I said, how come? And he said, well, because you're a girl, which by the way is one of the reasons my book is called The Watergate Girl, because I was called a girl. And he said, oh, you're a girl. And you know, in an appellate court, you're just with lawyers. In trial courts, you'd be with made members of the mob and it, you'd be so much more vulnerable than the men. And I just said, well, Henry, what didn't you recognize about me when you hired me as a trial lawyer? And I want a trial. And that's, if I hadn't spoken up, I would have never gotten my first trial. I'd still be an appellate lawyer. I'm sure. So it was only by figuring out what to do. And I'm hoping that in reading the book, um, people will, uh, it's not written as a how-to book or as a black letter rules book but it does sort of show how I overcame all the hurdles that were put in my path. And some of the hurdles were not just the discrimination and the sexism, um, but also my own insecurities 
And in part, those insecurities came from the fact that I was discriminated against. You know, I felt like an outsider because I was an outsider. And so, um, but I learned to deal with them. And if I can do it, so can any of your listeners. Well, now, Jill, tell us a little bit about that magic moment when all of a sudden you were asked to be a member of this Watergate team. Uh, I had been at the Department of Justice for a few years by then and got a call to interview for this. Um, My direct supervisor, who is one of the smartest, best lawyers I've ever known in my life, uh, Charles Ruff, had been already interviewed and offered a job. And I'm sure he must, I assume he gave them my name because I don't know how else, but they called and I went in for the interview. And basically the interview was, when can you start? Don't you have any questions? And he said, no, we've checked your background. We see your win record at the Department of Justice. You come highly recommended and we need you now. And I said, well, I have a pretty full caseload. It would take me a few weeks. He says, well, you don't have a few weeks. We need you immediately. And I basically started while I was still getting rid of my caseload at the Department of Justice and then um, basically started immediately in the Watergate group. And there were many groups within the Watergate Special Prosecutor's Office. People don't often realize this because the main case, of course, was the, the case against the president and his top aides. But there were, were teams working on campaign contributions, on dirty tricks, um, and several other teams. But I was luckily, I was assigned to the obstruction of justice case and worked with some of the best lawyers that I've ever known. I mean, and people who I am still very close with and speak to all the time. Um, I'm speaking at something in Washington in November and I'm hoping to be able to visit many of my Watergate colleagues while I'm there, uh, including the wife of one of the defense lawyers who I've stayed very close with. Um, And so it was just, it was a great experience being selected for that. And if I had thought about how challenging it was, one, I was barely 30. I was only a few years out of law school. We were up against the president of the United States the top lawyers who were representing him. And, you know, the president gets a lot of breaks in terms yes, of- Yes, he does. You know that. And as the only woman, it was really challenging. And I did encounter things like Judge Sirica, who was the judge in the case saying, during the tapes hearing, when I was cross-examining the chief suspect in the erasure of an 18 minute gap in a tape, now, ladies, don't you know we have enough problems in the courtroom without two women arguing? Oh, my gosh. Yes. I mean, you can imagine how I felt. Yes. And then when I was cross-examining a defendant, he said, Mr. Mardian, you can never win an argument with a lady. Oh. And, you know, it's, you just go numb, but he's the judge. You can't talk back to him. How do you respond? Well, you, you, you grin and bear it you just grit your teeth the second time it happened the first time nothing but the second time the students at columbia law school my alma mater wrote a letter to judge sirica complaining about his treatment and he actually called me into chambers and apologized and 
the problem really was not so much that he insulted me, although clearly he did, but for example, when I was cross-examining the defendant, part of our strategy was to get the defendant not riled, but to get him to show his true character. He was known um, as a hothead and a nasty guy that nobody liked. And we strategized that if he yelled at me, the jury would hate him. If he yelled at Rick or Jim, who were the other two trial lawyers, so what? He's yelling at a man, big deal. Did you get him to yell at you? Oh, I, that's why Judge Sirica said that. He, he wanted him <laughs> to stop yelling at me. And his lawyer actually wrote a book about the trial in which he says, the only reason he got convicted is because of how I cross-examined him because he yelled at me. <laughs> and we actually though did, did debate, there was a thing known then as male chauvinism. And we were worried that maybe he would control himself, that he wouldn't yell at me. No matter how I provoked him, he wouldn't yell. And then we thought, well, if he doesn't yell at you, we haven't lost anything because if he yells at Rick or Jim, we gain nothing. If you can get him to yell, we gain something. And so I got him to yell. And as soon as Judge Sirica said that, his lawyer jumped up and said, Your Honor, we need a recess. <laughs> every lawyer, every defense lawyer ran up to him at the break and said, you have to stop this. If you keep acting like this, you haven't got a chance. The jury hates you. You can't do this. And so he, he was much more controlled when we came back, which means that Judge Sirica had ruined my, you know, my whole strategy of getting him to yell at me. So. Oh my golly, oh my golly. But uh, that was a communication strategy too. I mean, that was, uh, it's not only what you're saying, it's how you say it. Exactly. It, it, it's, um, you know, there was a very significant book I read in college called Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. And it does talk about how we all choose how we present ourselves. Yep. And uh, the personality we put on, the communications tools we use, how we dress, everything is part of that. And um, yes, it was, it was a definite tactic that worked. It definitely worked. And then it got interrupted by the judge saying, stop this. So. And I'm, I'm sure, Jill, that you cover a lot of that in your book. I do. Yeah, absolutely. It's the book is a very, very personal story. Um, and it is really, yes, there's a reflection of I was born in Chicago. I went to yeah, college. Um, but it really is the primary action starts in May of 1973 when I'm appointed to this. And I go back to June of 72, which is when the break-in happened that led to the, the obstruction case. Um, but most of the action is from May of 73 until January of 75. Wow. So it's less than two years because the verdict was January of 75. Wow. That's how fast we did it. We investigated, we had the tapes hearing because the president wouldn't turn over the evidence. We had to go to the Supreme Court. We got the tapes. And then there were two that he said were missing. And then there was a third one that he said there had an 18 minute gap. And so we had these hearings to find out what had gone wrong with those. And um, we did it all in that period from May until January of 75, wow. which was really fast. And then there's one chapter that sort of summarizes the basic book ends with my um, after Watergate, I joined the law firm, and then I, gener I become general counsel of the Army, 
meet Michael Banks and move back to Chicago and I'm starting a whole new life. So that's when it ends. And then everything from 1980 until 2020, 40 years is one chapter. And <laughs> then there's an epilogue. I do not mention the obvious parallels between Richard Nixon and Donald Trump and the two administrations and the crimes. I don't mention that at all in the book at all, but in the epilogue, I do mention some of my reflections on the parallels and on the differences. And one of the biggest differences, because we've been talking about communications, is the difference in the media environment. Mm -hmm. During Watergate, there were three networks and only three, and all three had the same facts. There might be debate about the policy implications of those facts or about the solutions, how do you handle those facts, but nobody debated the facts. Nowadays, we live in different silos and people who watch MSNBC believe a set of information and people who watch, watch Fox believe that everything on MSNBC is a lie and that there's this alternative universe. And so if you can't agree on the facts, it's very hard to have a civil discussion and find a solution or a compromise. That's a serious problem. And that worries me greatly as to how we learn to communicate with each other again, how we get the facts to, and there is, there is no such thing as alternative facts. A fact is a fact. It doesn't have two sides. It is a fact, period. So we have to get back to agreeing on the facts in order to agree on what are the solutions to those facts. Well, you're if, absolutely right. I mean, in, in terms of facts, in logic, your, your facts are your premise, are your, your hypothesis. This is what you base your analysis on. If your facts are true, then your conclusion can be true. If your facts are not true, your conclusion can be anything you want it to be. Exactly. And without being political, if you believe that there was fraud in the election and that you have to cure it by restricting voting, that's one set of things. But if there is not one single shred of evidence that there was fraud, then you're curing a problem by restricting people's rights for no reason at all. Absolutely. Facts are the facts, and courts that have heard these presentations have now disbarred the lawyers who brought those cases. So that says something, but that doesn't mean that the people listening to Fox News don't still believe that there was fraud when there's no evidence of it. And that goes back to what you said in the beginning, say it loud and say it often, and people will believe you. doesn't yeah. matter if it's true or not. And as you said, facts matter. They should, yes. Hey, well, Jill, uh, you're, you're changing the subject a little bit because we're we're running a little bit long, but this is certainly interesting. You're uh, really one that keeps busy, and you've got a lot going on with your charitable work as well as your civic activities. Now, briefly, tell us a little bit about that. So, yes, I do keep very busy. Two of the things that are keeping me the busiest now besides television is I have two podcasts. One is an interview format where we interview some of the most 
interesting and powerful people in the country. And, and I do it with an 18 year old who I met when he was 17 and still in high school. He was running to be a Biden delegate, as was I, and that's how we met. Although we didn't actually meet because it was already COVID. And so we only met remotely, you know, we, we met by computer. Um, and I don't know, we just in talking, talked about our intergenerational perspective on things. And that wouldn't it be interesting to talk to people, him saying, tell me advice for career planning purposes and talking about what their views of the world were. And we have talked to anybody we think of that we think would be interesting. We've asked and everybody has said, yes, it's been amazing. So we've had, um, you know, everybody, cabinet officers and senators and members of the House of Representatives and journalists one journalist who's now running apparently for uh, governor of Oregon, uh, Nick Kristoff. Uh, although unfortunately I didn't know he was gonna run for governor at the time we interviewed him, but he's one of my favorite journalists. So um, we've, we've had great guests and the conversations are really getting to know people. Um, and we've had a couple people twice. We had Mary Trump twice because people really liked her insights and she has two books. So we talked to her about her first book first and now her second book. Um, the other one is called- oh, Just a second, just a second, Jill. That, that podcast is called iGen Politics. Right, exactly. And you can, uh, you can just Google that and go to iGen po po uh, Politics and find the podcast with uh, Jill Weinbanks. And Dick, and Dick Sheet. Sheet. Yeah. Right. And, okay. and it's, it's, it's not only, uh, you can get it wherever you get your podcasts, yeah. But you can also get it on YouTube because we do record that one with video. Okay. The other podcast and our producer for both podcasts, we have professional production, is Politicon, who are terrific, terrific yeah. people. Um, the other one is called Hashtag Sisters-in-Law, and the hashtag is part of the name. Hashtag I love it. I love it. And it's because we are sisters in the law. There are four of us. Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, who are both law professors and former U.S. attorneys, one in um, Alabama and one in Michigan. And the other is Kimberly Atkins Store. She started out as Kimberly Atkins, but has recently married. Um, and she is an opinion writer for the Boston Globe and an occasional host on uh, NPR and also an MSNBC legal uh, analysts, more political analysts. So we're all MSNBC contributors. And it's just us talking about the issues of the day. And the conversations, I always learn a lot. And I also have to study a lot. We pick our subject on Thursday, we record on Friday. And from Thursday until our recording, I am researching and <laughs> and studying. I work really hard to be prepared for that one. And our subjects are always really, really topical uh, in the news and law related, but really interesting things, the, the Theranos trial, the release of Sirhan Sirhan, the Texas abortion uh, decision from the Supreme Court or non-decision. Um, so that was the most recent episode. And it's, it's been fascinating and it takes a lot of time to do both of those. So 
it's been, you know, been quite busy. I'm thinking about a second book. That'll keep me busy. I'm on the board of the Better Government Association, which uh, focuses a lot on transparency in government, corruption, um, you know, Freedom of Information Act, and um, we do reporting. We very, very excellent reporting, as well as policy um, activities. So it keeps me very busy, I would say. And you're also busy as a as an MSNBC commentator. Yes. Well, it's just a little bit about that because we're running toward the end of what we can of the time I can steal from you. Okay. So one piece of advice I have is the way I ended up on MSNBC was while I was writing my book, I got a fellowship to Ragdale, which is an artist community in Lake Forest, Illinois, and it's 12 people are resident there at a time and you go there for you know at least three weeks some people stay longer and the idea is you go there to do your art whether it is painting or music or writing um, and you have dinners together every everything besides dinner you're on your own you can do whatever you want and one of the people i met there was a woman named rita dragonette who called me after we were together there and said, I just heard about a course in how to write a op-ed and it's intended to get voices that aren't normally heard, which means not white male, onto the opinion pages. And I bet you have something to say. This was right after Trump was elected. I took the class from the op-ed project on a Sunday and on Tuesday, James Comey got fired. I thought, well, I just took this course. I have something to say about that. I'm going to try my hand at writing. And of course, I wrote an outline, which is what I said one of the key Absolutely. skills to organize my thoughts. And I wrote from my own facts and experience in a way that I hoped would be persuasive. Um, and it got published. And as soon as it was published, television stations started calling me saying, we'd love to have you on to talk about this. And eventually that led to a contract with NBC. So I would say, you know, sometimes you just have to do it. And you just have to get out there and do it, don't you? And that's yeah. something that you really have done. Uh, Jill, just to, to kind of to, to cap everything off, let's just say you were giving a, uh, a high school graduation address and you wanted to make, make two or three points. And I think maybe you've already made them during our conversation, but two or three points about the importance of skills. Uh, what would the message be? I think we have covered it really. Yeah, I, um, think did. I think those are the important skills. I think it's also important to believe in yourself and to just do it. Women particularly, I'm gonna address in this one, think that they can't apply for a job unless they have 10 out of 10 skills that are listed. Men with one think they're qualified. <laughs> if you think you can do the job and you want to do the job, go for it. Put yourself in positions before that where you can show off to the bosses to show that you know what you're doing. Don't sit at the back of the room, sit in the front of the room. You know, be, be there, be with it. But always be prepared, always know your facts, know what you're talking about, and then speak up. So I would say when you combine that with being organized and thoughtful in your uh, outlining and 
in being persuasive, communicating to the right people in the right tone. That's, that's what will help you to succeed. And, and I would also say, be nice to people. It never hurts to be nice. This idea that leaders are all mean and nasty, baloney. You know, I, I have accomplished more by being friends with and liked by the people that work for me. And I think that's good advice for anyone seeking a, a long-term career advancement. I'd say that's a pretty good summary. And I would, I would, I would also say, and it probably would be better coming from me, is be like the Watergate girl. That's what I would tell them. That's what I would tell them. Now, to uh, to kind of recap a little bit, um, you can get Jill's book, The Watergate Girl, on Amazon or in the bookstores and that sort of thing. And you can you can Google and go to the sites for her podcasts, hashtag Sisters in Law and iGen Politics. Right. So do it and uh, and have some fun. And Jill, thank you so very much for being our guest today on It's All About Skills. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. And I hope everyone will enjoy the book and let me know what you think through Twitter. Absolutely. Now, as for me, I'm an internationally certified career coach specializing in career management, skill development, career crises, and positive intelligence. And you can get in touch with me with through my websites, charliejetcoaching.com or podcastpq.com. So thank you all for listening today, and we'll see you next time as we discuss the critical skills on It's All About Skills. Thank you for listening to this episode of All About Skills. To learn more information about the critical skills, be sure to visit itsallaboutskills.com for access to resources like blogs, field studies, published books, and more about how to learn, how to use, and how to teach this important content. That's exclusively available on itsallaboutskills.com. We look forward to having you join us on the next episode so we can continue to help you learn, master, and excel by using critical skills right here on All About Skills.